Good morning. Just going to get right into it. Uh, first, a little context. We're in a summer sermon series on Sermon on the Mount for those of you who haven't been here in the last few weeks. We're in week four. We're hearing Jesus speak directly to us and directly to our anxious hearts. So a little bit of context. Uh, this Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus' longest discourse in the Bible. And it's only 13 minutes long. If you read it, and even if you're a slow reader, you're, you're talking 13, 14 minutes. Now, I've only got a couple hours to preach this sermon with you this morning. But 13 minutes, it caused me to think... How many times have I sat and listened to a sermon and then I started drifting off, listening, thinking about other things in my head, concerns that consume me about this world and this life. It doesn't take long to lose our focus, so maybe every five to seven minutes, I'm going to reset the sermon for you. Hello little context then again Jesus has been in Galilee all about Galilee uh, performing miracles and preaching the kingdom of heaven Matthew 4 verse 23 he is preaching preaching what preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and so that's kind of our bluff this morning our bottom line up front is that Jesus is asking us who live in the kingdom to live a perfect life of righteousness. Perfect life of righteousness. And he shows us how we can do that. So let me ask you this when we talk about the kingdom of heaven. Where do you live? Where do you live? When, what does your consciousness say when I ask you where you live? Danville, Harrodsburg, Lancaster, Boyle County, Mercer County, Kentucky, Florida, Alabama, where do you live? Christians, I'll tell you this morning, you live in the kingdom of heaven. That's where we live primarily, and that's where we get our breath, our life. That's where we are acting and breathing every day. And that should be our primary focus, that we are living in the kingdom of heaven. And, and I say that because he's preaching the kingdom of heaven. And I say that because I want you to understand that the kingdom is not geographic. It's not spatial. I think it was John Stott who said, the kingdom is a king dominion. We live under reign. We live under the king in the kingdom of heaven. That's where we get our person, our belonging, who we are living in his kingdom. And there's an aspect that's already and not yet. You probably heard this in the Bible, already, not yet. The kingdom has come. Prophecy ended with John, and Jesus ushered in the kingdom of heaven, the already 
We are in the kingdom of heaven. And the not yet, the full consummation of the kingdom to come at his second coming. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Shane has spoke many times already about flourishing, a life that is flourishing, flourishing in the kingdom. And Jesus came that we could have that flourishing and that life and have it abundantly. So if you live in the kingdom of God now, or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, you can flourish and you can have that life abundantly. Last week, Kevin preached Matthew 5, 13 through 16 that led up to 17 through 20. He talked about Jesus and our relationship with the world being salt and light. It was wonderful about how the salt can get contaminated by what? By the world. The salt becomes contaminated and then it gets ruined. And it's impossible to follow the norms of the kingdom in a purely private way. You cannot live in the kingdom privately. The righteousness of your life will attract attention. So now we've come to verses 17 through 20. And I was pleased when Shane told me that the preaching this morning would be on 17 through 20, and then I read more than one commentator that these are probably the most difficult verses in the Bible. And uh, so, so, so my goal today is to make that difficulty simple, to make the complex simple for us to understand. And I think we can clearly look at it that way, and it can be simple. I think it was Einstein who said, if you can't explain it to your grandmother, uh, then you don't understand it. So the goal is that when we leave here, we can explain it to either our grandmother or some other grandmother so they could clearly understand as well. I will tell you also, uh, the title of this sermon is Greater Righteousness. You'll see in the verses that we are expected and God demands a greater righteousness from us than the Pharisees and the scribes. I was also thinking that maybe we could title this sermon the most famous sermon ever preached. Uh, but regretfully, that's not the sermon you're receiving this morning. So the title is Greater Righteousness. And here are the key themes or points that, that I'd like to cover this morning. Four verses, four points. Verse 17, Scripture points to Jesus. In verse 18, Scripture is perfect in every detail. Verse 19, Scripture is to be obeyed and taught. And verse 20, Scripture focuses on the heart of obedience. In the first few verses, Jesus is going to speak about the Scriptures in relationship to him. And then in the second half, what scripture says to us about living in the kingdom and entering into a true life in that kingdom. Let's pray. 
God, our Father, we, we come on bended knee. We bow down before your throne this morning because this morning and all of history is about you. Lord, I ask that you protect me from myself, that you minimize this sinner and maximize your message, that we will not be shaken by a different style or a different voice, but that we clearly hear from you this morning, that you are preeminent and in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears and our minds and have the word penetrate us and then move 12 inches down to our hearts that we may apply this in our life in the kingdom. May your words and thoughts, may our words, may our thoughts glorify you. Oh, Lord. Amen. So let's get right into it. Verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I mean, what a declaration. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Now, why does he say that? He says that because that was the thought. The thought of the day, the thought of the people... Do not think it, because I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this is our first idea I'd like to unpack. This is telling us about, after just telling us about salt and light, our purpose, now he's telling us about his purpose. He starts by saying he doesn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, Listen, the law and the prophets, don't get confused by that. Don't think of the 613 Jewish laws, the ceremonial laws, the Leviticus laws. The law and the prophets is a general term for the scriptures. And he's saying, don't think I've come to abolish the scriptures. I've come to fulfill them. It's really that simple. He begins his ministry and tells us this because it's important. He's not telling people, don't obey God's law. You don't need this anymore. He's not preaching that. He's not saying, follow, you know, uh, follow the scribe, follow the Pharisees, follow how they obey the law. He's saying, scriptures have arrived. No. Jesus has a high view, the highest view of the scriptures. If I think about it, you know, he was tempted in the desert three times. And, and how did he respond? He quoted scripture. And then he's on the cross at the climax of his life here on earth. The worst moment somebody could face, just at death. And what does he do? He screams scripture. My God, my God, Psalm 22. Father, into thy hands I commit myself. Psalm 31.5. Tedeleste, it is finished. John 19.30. He didn't just believe Scripture. He bled it. He screamed it. He was it. 
Jesus is scripture realized. So moreover, what does he mean by saying, I am not abolishing the law and the prophets? And I think at the end of verse 17, we can see that more clearly. He says, I am here to fulfill it. And what does fulfill mean? It means literally fill. I am here to fulfill scripture. He didn't say, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to confirm it. He didn't say he's here to confirm it. He's not saying I'm pushing it aside, I'm avoiding the first law. He's going to fulfill it. He's not saying stop following the law and just listen what I have to say. He brought in the new covenant he set aside the old because he was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He says, everything in the Old Testament is actually about me. Everything in scripture points to me. The Bible is about Jesus. Scripture is not about us. It is about him. We can't read the Bible that way. It's the historical development of God's redemptive purpose. Think of it this way. The Old Testament is the presentation of Jesus Christ, and the New Testament is the person of Jesus Christ. The law doesn't just show us our sin. The law shows us our Savior. And this is kind of hard, but if we don't understand that, if we believe in the absolute, absolute authority and inspiration of the scripture, but we don't understand how to read it, read it, it's just going to make us a Pharisee as well. And it's amazing to me, but there are a lot of people in church that are just like that, reading it in that same direction reading it just like the Pharisees read it. So we move on to verse 18, and it says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Scripture is perfect in every detail. Not until heaven and earth pass away, will the law pass away. When the heaven and earth pass away and the new heaven and earth are here, there will be no need for the law because the law will judge us in the kingdom as righteous, clothed in Jesus' righteousness and will condemn the wicked and the law will no longer be needed. So we get to this verse, let me say, when, when we speak, uh, we have gaps sometimes between our words and our person. We can lie and so deliberately misrepresent ourselves. We can speak imprecisely and so accidentally misrepresent ourselves. We can change our minds 
so that our past represents what we formerly believed, but our current convictions are different. There's a gap between the person in the words of every speaker, every speaker except Jesus. Jesus' words perfectly express his character, his mind, his will. He never deceives. He never changes his mind. He never misspeaks. He never has to say, do as I say, but not as I do. His words are true and perfect in every detail. But in the world, geographically, spatially, that we live, it's different. There are way too many unfit personal trainers, divorced marriage counselors, debt-ridden financial planners. I'm going to underscore it again. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. He does what he says. He is what he says. Every word perfectly reflects his mind, his character, his actions. When we read or listen to this Sermon on the Mount, all 13 minutes, we don't hear just Jesus' words. We hear Jesus, the person. So in verse 18, Jesus is, is acknowledging the immutability of Scripture right down to the smallest jot or tittle as translated in the King James. I mean, you're talking about a seraph, like the dot on top of an I, but with a little bit of a comma look to it. Every single iota and dot will remain until the heaven and earth pass away. The least stroke of a pen So Jesus is upholding the truth, the righteousness, and the validity of every word in Scripture. And I'm saying this because this is important for us to live in the kingdom. The truthfulness of the written text. He's not merely saying the Old Testament contains some truth some applicability. It's not true when men encounter it in some truthful or meaningful way. It is true in every way. He says in John 10.35, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. And I think this is where they say, the commentaries may say these verses are very difficult to understand because elsewhere we see himself but we don't see him abolishing but fulfilling so why do the New Testament writers then say Jesus' death and resurrection insist the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is no longer necessary and in principle abolished as it says in Hebrews chapter 8 and 10 and I think that's it. The most interesting thing about this word, the law, and a lot of people come off the rails a little bit when it gets to this, is because what are they thinking about? The 613 commands in the Torah or the Old Testament? 
the sacrificial system, what are they thinking of when they think of the law? He's saying the law and the prophets. He's saying the whole entire scriptures. I heard an amen from a Presbyterian. That's noteworthy. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we've got to shake off that Presbyterian crust on our clothing and loosen up a little bit and get excited. Now's a good time to reset the sermon. Refo refocus our attention. So the word law in verse 18 is a synonym for law and prophets in verse 17. He's not talking about the formal, technical law, but the scriptures himself, the whole scriptures. In John 10, 34, Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Psalm 82, a hymn, a poem, and he calls it your law. He says, does it not read in your law? He's quoting Psalm 82. So it's okay to use the word law for the whole of scripture. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments per se. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament as pointing to Christ and the blessings he brings. An example is in the sacrificial system pointed towards Jesus' sacrifice in Hebrews 9, verse 8 through 12. It says, by this Holy Spirit... By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Luke 24 tells us, Indeed, everything had to be fulfilled that was written about Christ in the law of the Moses, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, Luke 24, 44. And therefore the resurrected Lord could explain to his disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, Moses and the prophets. I'd like to look at the verse in Luke 24, verse 25 and 44, but remember this is on the road to Emmaus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So they're in Jerusalem, and a lot is going on, all centered on Jesus. And now they're walking away talking about it. And Kevin, forgive me, but I pictured me and you doing this. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus shows up, draws near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. How many times in our life are we walking and Jesus is with us? 
but we don't recognize him. Hmm. He says, <laughs> what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? And he said to him, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, the word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up. But we had hoped that he was one, the one to redeem Israel. And yes, besides all this, get down to verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that I, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He disappears, and Kevin and Scott are still sitting there. And the two say, were our hearts not burning when he was talking to us on the road? I love that. Does your heart burn when Jesus is explaining things to you and when he is talking to you? Verse 18 and verse 17 are quite interconnected. John 5, 39 through 40 says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Going to him that we may have life is the greater righteousness that he is demanding from us. His righteousness, not yours. When we realize that, we realize that Matthew 5, verse 18 is really giving us a theology of Scripture, a view of the divinity, an authority of the Scripture that is high as it could possibly be Scripture is perfect because Jesus is perfect. In the next two verses, 19 and 20, Jesus moves from talking about Scripture, the law and the prophets, to talking about the kingdom and our lives in that kingdom. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so the point is, Scripture is to be obeyed and taught. So Jesus' conclusion from his purpose presents us with a problem. The problem 
is when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to us. He's talking to those in the kingdom. He's saying those in the kingdom who relax any of this will be called least. And I love the word relax, and I believe it's a good word. Relax or loosen is the best understanding of the Greek word, in my opinion. The problem wasn't that the scribes and Pharisees went around telling people to break the law. They didn't tell people to ignore the law. But what we see them doing, Jesus is addressing here, is that they relaxed the law. And this is what you see Jesus saying in the rest of chapter 5. The scribes and the Pharisees had an amazing way of relaxing the law. And it's important that Jesus is bringing this up now at the start of his sermon because he's talking about how we can have an abundant and flourishing life in the kingdom. We relax God's laws. And we relax them to justify ourselves. This is a very important lens for us to have as we listen to Jesus and how he interacts with people. And the reason I think people think they are keeping God's laws is because they are relaxing them. We are lowering God's standard that he has set for us. So, an example of this is when Jesus told the parable about the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. A person asks, what does he have to do to inherit life? Jesus responds and by saying, well, what does God's law say? The person answers, to love the Lord your God and all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says you answered correctly. Luke 10, 28. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. You will be in the kingdom. You will live a flourishing, abundant life. But an honest person realizes the answer is a problem. The answer is a problem. And we're told the reason why, because the person next asks, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? He's trying to justify himself. Wait a minute, love my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? It can't mean what you really said. So tell me, who is my neighbor? I need to justify myself. This is our temptation. This is the temptation of every human. We take God's commands and we relax the ones that don't work for us. We lower the standard so we can feel like we're succeeding. Think about the laws that you try to relax. 
sexual sins. You try to relax because you have desires. You have needs. Wives, they don't need to submit to their husbands for various reasons. You don't understand that he's changed. You don't know that he's an ogre. He makes bad decisions. He's just not sufficient or adequate in this area. We don't need to love each other and sacrifice for each other because surely God didn't mean that we would have to give our lives and desires for others. We try to relax our need for fellowship and worship. We're tired. We're busy. Life is hard. We try to relax our need to spend time with God. We need downtime. I can't possibly be asked to be in God's word every day. And the command to have the attitude of Christ and put on the interests of others ahead of ourselves? No, you've got to be kidding me. There's got to be more to that command. And easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That cannot be what it means. We must relax that somehow so that rich people can enter. And I want you to realize, please realize, everyone does this. Everyone does this. Unbelievers say they don't need to believe in Jesus. Marginal followers say they don't need to take up the cross and follow them. Everyone justifies themselves in what they're doing, relaxing what God expects. And he's not talking about people outside the kingdom. He's talking about people in the kingdom. Look at verse, uh, what 19 says. It, it's hard Hard to hear. It's hard teachings. But dear church, fasten your pew belt. It gets worse. In verse 20, he pushes us further. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Scripture is now focusing not on the physical, but the spiritual. The heart of obedience. What he's getting at when he says a greater righteousness is this, that Jesus demands for his people a qualitative righteousness, not a quantitative righteousness. The quality of the righteousness that comes out of your heart. The righteousness in and from our hearts. Jesus is putting a spotlight on the religious people. Religious people who were meticulous at following laws. Religious people who are good at relaxing God's laws. Religious people. We'll see later, they tithed the mint, dill, the cumin, but they neglected mercy. 
So what they were doing, we often try to do in relaxing those laws. When we don't keep a commandment, we look to justify ourselves with why. Jesus is saying the responsibility of the people is clear. The righteousness they were seeking because of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is insufficient in the kingdom. We need a greater righteousness. Romans 3, 21-22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness that's demanded is not just external, but it's internal, based on faith in God's word. Jesus in Matthew 5.48 is going to tell us, hear this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. That's the demand absolute holiness it's important for us to see that standard that standard of perfection perfection it's the standard to have a blessed life and the only way you can do that in the kingdom is to repent to turn from your imperfect your sin and turn to the righteousness of Jesus Christ The only way I'm going to mourn over my sins is when I see how many sins I've committed. We will not seek righteousness. We will not be merciful. We will not be pure at heart. We will not be peacemakers. We will not endure persecution so long as we keep lowering those laws relax them. Instead, we need to be collapsed. We need to be ruined. We need to be eviscerated, literally disemboweled in our souls when we see the righteousness of God compared to our own righteousness. And so we land on this. The point of God's law is to show us that our only hope is to stop hoping in ourselves. We need to live under that severity. We need to live in that kingdom. There is no one who is righteous. Everyone has turned away. No one does good, not even one. No one fears God. Romans 3. We are spiritual disasters. I'll summarize with this. Don't be despondent because I have good news. We're not supposed to give up. We go back to Matthew. We can't fulfill the law. But Jesus did. Jesus can. Jesus did. He did not come to relax the laws. He came to fulfill them. And this moves our hope off of ourselves and onto Jesus. I spent some time in Jerusalem and Calvary in the Garden of Gethsemane. And somewhere in the proximity of where Christ was tortured and beaten, it 
says in Mark, when they crucified him, they divided his garments, they casted lots for them to determine what every man should take. Because the Romans, and typical of that day as oppressors, would strip their captives of anything and everything that had any value. So Jesus arrived to that place around 9 in the morning. His treatment followed. If it would have followed that same procedure, he was stripped of all his clothes, possibly left a loincloth. He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. The very best things we do are so permeated with sin that our best is unacceptable. They are filthy rags in God's sight. But at the cross, Jesus gave us his perfect, spotless robe of righteousness. And on judgment day, we will be judged righteous by the law because he wore our filthy garments of sin. So in this great clothing exchange, the spoils go to the captives. Righteousness in Christ changed hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. Not for anything we have done, we do, or we will do. I pray that those of us in this room who know your son as Savior would look at the parts of our lives that don't match up to the Sermon on the Mount. That we will all come to you in renewed repentance and striving as we live under the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.